to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. Reading from verse 32. There were also two other criminals led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription was also written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you're under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of her deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today... You will be with me in paradise. Let's just pray. (coughs) Father, as we come upon this season of Easter, and our hearts are drawn almost automatically to that scene of the cross. Lord, help us never to become accustomed to thinking about the cross. Never to be blasé about it. Because it was the greatest event in all of history. Thank you, Lord, for the impact of the cross upon each of our hearts. We bless you, Lord, that we have been saved, redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And help us this morning, Lord, as we look again at this scene. Help, Lord, our hearts and our ears to be open to the voice of the Spirit. And so, Father, we give you thanks for your Son, the Lord Jesus, and all that he has accomplished on the cross for us. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. It was the time of the Jewish Passover. Many, many people had gathered in Jerusalem to commemorate this historic feast. Passover was the most solemn of all of the seven feasts that were held yearly in Israel. For centuries they had remembered, of course, their great deliverance from Egypt and how that God brought them out with a mighty hand. And how that those Israelites 
the land of Goshen were spared the death angel as he passed over because they had applied the blood of the sacrificial lamb to the doorposts and to the lentils of their houses. But outside Jerusalem, on a hill called Calvary, the word is Calvaria, simply means skull. Matthew in his gospel calls it Golgotha. And in the Hebrew, Cranion, which is where we get the word cranium from, which also simply means skull. So it literally is the place of the skull, perhaps because of the shape of the hill. Maybe the topography of the hill lends itself to that description. But here on Calvary's hill, there are three crosses. Christ is crucified between two thieves, one on the right hand and one on the left. Three crosses, three men, three entirely different stories. One was a sinner. One was sorry. One was a savior. One rebelled. One repented. One redeemed. One lost their life. One found their life. And one gave their life. Three different stories. So let's this morning, just for a little bit, look at these three men on these three crosses. Let's first of all look at the one who rebelled, the sinner the one who lost his life. I wonder where and when it all began to go wrong for this criminal. I wonder how it all started. How did he end up so hard, cruel, callous, hardened criminal? And in the end, a blasphemer. Even in his dying breath, he blasphemed the lovely Son of God. wonder about his childhood. This was somebody's son. This was some mother's son. wonder did he come from a dysfunctional home, as we would say in these days. Or perhaps... His home life was great. Maybe he had a wonderful mum and dad. But somehow or other, he rebelled. You know, psychologists and sociologists today, they talk about nature and nurture. Somebody goes wrong, was it nature, was it nurture? It's always the big debate, isn't it? And there seemed to be the emphasis today as on nurture. Because we need somebody to blame, don't we? But no, whenever you think about Hezekiah, Hezekiah was the good son of a bad father. But he was also the good father of a bad son. <coughs> Jacob and Esau were brothers, but they're very different. Esau really had no time for spiritual things at all. 
So we don't really know where it all began to go wrong with this fella. Wonder did he steal all, steal all her kids' toys? Hmm? Wonder was he like this from a very early age or perhaps later on in life? Wonder about his youth. Did he fall in with the wrong crowd? You know the old saying, if you lie down with dogs, you get up with fleas. Wonder was that happened to this young man? Maybe he got to a certain age and he began to move in other circles that maybe weren't like home life and some of that began to rub off, perhaps, we don't know. Maybe he was the ringleader for all we know. Maybe he was the one that gathered others and influenced them. We just don't know. I wonder when he was caught from time to time, did he promise with all of his heart that he would never, ever do this again? But he did. And he seemed to be always going back to the life of crying. But now he's a man. Now it's a lifestyle. Now it's deeply ingrained. Now it seems to be he has no conscience. Conscience is seared. His heart is really hardened. He's become ruthless. Now, when we think about thieves, we're not talking here about burglars. We're talking about people who are ruthless. People who would have cut your throat for your purse. Some people here would commit GBH in a heartbeat. That's what we're talking about. Not somebody that stole an apple of a stall here. But one day this life of crime, it caught up with him. One day he stole one time too many. And he was caught. And in those days it was swift justice. And even though the Romans had courts, but... Whatever it was he had done, there was no reprieve. There was no coming back from this crime. He'd have to pay with his life. And even as he is paying with his life because the wages of sin had got to be paid for, even then he was still blaspheming the Son of God. And yet the tragedy of it all is the very one he was blaspheming was the very one who could have been his savior, his redeemer, who could have given the greatest pardon that life could ever afford. He was just a few feet away. And yet in a few moments, a great gulf would be fixed between them for all eternity. Invisible escorts were gathering. They were coming for him. Who would it be? Angels or demons? Who's going to snatch his soul? He came so close. Literally feet away was the Savior. And yet he went out into eternity lost forever. Judas kissed the very door of heaven, Christ. But he didn't enter in, did he? So that's the one who rebelled. But then what about the one who repented? Although he too was a sinner, 
but he was a sorry sinner. And there's a world of difference. Although T too had rebelled, but now he's repented. Now he turns around and he rebukes his friend. And in effect, he's saying, how can you say that? You know that this man has done nothing wrong. We all know that. We know what the authorities are like. We know how cruel the Romans are. We know what the Jewish hierarchy is like. I mean, they knew this man for years. He was the talk of the whole nation. He was a household name. Everybody knew about Jesus of Nazareth. And so he rebuked him. His heart is not totally hardened. His conscience is not yet seared. There's a, there's a glimmer of hope here. Something stirred within this thief. And I don't know what precipitated this. We know that the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts, but he uses something. And I don't know what it was. Maybe he just always felt there's something different about the man from Nazareth, the healer, the miracle worker, the man who is such a gentle spirit. Maybe he, he just instinctively felt this is a good man, but on that cross that day there was something more. Maybe the words that Jesus had spoken, you know, nobody, nobody that ever been crucified ever prayed for his crucifiers. Nobody had ever done. They would curse them to the grave. But Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Nobody had ever heard those words across before. But perhaps when this man heard it, he thought, this man's different. How could he forgive those who crucified him? Maybe when he saw his mother and a few of the women standing there, Jesus speaking to them, woman, behold your son. Something stirred in this man's heart. This man in the middle was like no other man that was ever crucified. And he sensed that. Maybe, maybe, maybe it was the inscription on the cross. Maybe when he looked at that, because you've got to read all the Gospels to see the full import of that, written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, three great cultures of the day. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Boy, the Jews hated that, didn't they? said, Pilate, take that down. Don't put that up. What I have written, I have written. And maybe when that thief looked at that, he thought, you know, this is the king of the, this truly is Messiah, the anointed one. And he says, Lord, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Grace, do you want a drink there? Have you got one? Lord, remember me <clears throat> when you come into your kingdom. Verse 43, Jesus answered that cry and he said, Today, 
you shall be with me in paradise. Hmm. Today, what comfort? You shall be with me. What company? In paradise. What consolation? Today, what a hope. You shall be with me. What a helper. Hmm. In paradise, what heaven. Can you imagine this man? All of his life, a life that was wasted and ruined. And now he's dying a horrible death. Crucifixion was the most cruel death that ever been devised by human beings. And in a moment, today, you know, normally crucifixions would last for days on end. It was a slow, lingering, cruel, wicked death designed to last for days. But of course, that being a special Sabbath that was coming up, the Jews sought Pilate that they might break their legs so they wouldn't be hanging on a cross and desecrate their feast. How mixed up was that? Today, what comfort that must have brought. What a consolation. A life that was ruined and racked by sin is now going to be saved for all eternity. What grace. What mercy. No purgatory here. No intermediate place of suffering and purging before you get to heaven. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. No soul sleep, as some teach. Today, Paul says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. In a heartbeat. Today. You know, I was thinking earlier when Clifford was talking about the set that has been made for this drama in a few days' time. And I was thinking earlier when he was saying that, how that, remember the very first time we brought Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames? And the whole set was amazing, wasn't it? And how hard everybody had to work. You had only two days to learn your lines. And then it was live, wasn't it? Remember that? But you know, I remember, I remember Billy and Lily Newell sitting at the front because they couldn't get anywhere else to sit. They always sat at the back when they came to church, as they do now, of course. And they'd been coming a long time and just about everybody assumed they were saved, but they weren't. And they knew they weren't. Lovely people. Good people. Honest people. But not saved people. And that first night, first time we showed it, when the appeal went up, they were the first two to stand. Now do you see the importance of 
considering Billy's health at the moment. Now do you see the importance of winning a soul to Christ? Of course, they have all these years of following the Lord now, but now that life is ebbing away, see the importance of meeting the Savior, of coming to the cross. Wouldn't it be beautiful if this weekend, Clifford, if some men or women or boys and girls would just come to Christ? Wouldn't that be lovely? Wouldn't that be great? And maybe some others that will start them on the journey. They might start thinking in a way that they've never thought before because it's been pictorialized in front of them. You know, that's what did it for Billy too because, I mean, he'd heard the gospel a million times because this wasn't the only church he went to before he came here. And, but something about the, it being illustrated, there's something about it that just, the Holy Spirit took that night and just opened the heart. So there was one who rebelled. He was lost. There's one who repented. And he was found. He found life just at the last minute. Such is the grace of God, isn't it? In his dying moments, he found Christ. I have led people to the Lord over the years and some of them didn't last till the next day. Some of them, they were gone within hours into eternity. Don't recommend that anybody waits that long. Because you never know when your dying breath's going to be. So you can't presume upon it. But it just shows you the grace of God. And then thirdly, there's the one who redeemed. One lost his life, one found his life, one gave his life. Western cultures, Western countries, the culture has been, at least to recently anyway, has been accepting, accepting of the cross as a symbol of Christianity. We find it in steeples all over the land, stained glass windows and altars. We even find it as a fashion accessory. And earrings and hung around necks and bangles. But in Christ's day, it wasn't so fashionable, was it? It was an embleming of suffering and shame, it was. It was a mode of execution, like the hangman's noose, like the gas chamber, like the electric chair. Don't see anybody with one of those hung around their neck as a fashion accessory, do you? So for centuries, the cross has been seen as a symbol of Christianity. But in Christ, that wasn't so popular. To die a death upon a cross was the most ignominious thing that could happen. You had to be a common criminal 
a wicked man. So you can understand it to the Jews. This, their so-called Messiah. Take that inscription from the cross. He's no king of the Jews. This is not our Messiah. This is a scandal. Paul in Galatians calls it an offense. The cross is an offense, a stumbling block, a scandal on. It's an embarrassment to the Jew. How could you possibly think that this common criminal dying on a Roman cross, how could that be our Messiah? You must be joking. It's horrible to think about it. That's what they thought. That's what they believed. Scandal. Surely if it was Messiah, he would have come in great power and glory. The Bible says the Jews look for a sign. They look for a wonder. They look for a miracle. They wanted a Moses. They wanted an Elijah. They wanted a sea departed. They wanted a fire to come from heaven. Didn't want a man hanging on a cross. It offended them. Deeply offended. But to the Greek... Paul says it was just foolishness. And the word he uses is interesting, moria. Moria is where we got moronic from. Absurd. Completely illogical. Makes no sense whatsoever. To the Greek, to the ones who sought wisdom. The Bible says that the wisdom of man is foolishness with God. But you could also reverse that. For many, the wisdom of God is foolishness with men. And this was the wisdom of God. And neither Jew nor Greek could see it. It was the wisdom of God. The Jew couldn't understand why their Messiah would have to suffer. They just didn't understand that. And the Greek didn't want to understand that. It was just plain stupid. Moronic. To the religious thinking man, it was a scandal. To the philosophical thinking man, to the intellectual, it was absurd. I mean, to think that one man, any man, much less a thief, much less a criminal, much less somebody who's been accused by authorities and are hanging on a cross, to think that that man's blood would be shed, would forgive the sins of the whole world. Nah. How absurd. How unreasonable to even think that. And you know that's the prevailing thought today for the religious man and the intellectual man. One just thinks it's a scandal. See, the religious man's got a problem because for him to believe that somebody had to die a horrible death and shed his blood and be a sacrifice for them offends them. Because you see, they're good enough. 
Oh, they're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. They wouldn't say they're perfect, but they're good enough. God will let me into heaven. I, I haven't really, I haven't killed anybody. I'm not really a thief. I, I haven't done anything bad, really. Oh, I know there's little things because nobody's just perfect, but I, I, I think God will let me in. But when you tell that person, now you are a sinner. And you're going to die and go to hell because you're a sinner unless you accept Christ as your Savior because you need saved. Boy, the hackles begin to rise in the back of their neck. And their veins begin to pop. And they get mad at you because it offends them. Maybe you've never had the pleasure of telling somebody that for them to react that way. I've had. I know what it's like. Highly offended, particularly church-going people. <laughs> Not the man who's in the pub or in the boogies. <laughs> he knows he's a sinner. You don't have to convince him of that. <laughs> no, the religious person. The one who graces a church every week. And how blessed that church is that they go to it, they think. Or maybe they go at Easter and Christmas couple of times a year and send their envelope in. Well, that's enough. Because I'm a decent person. God will accept me. No, he won't. No, you're a sinner. And it is saved. The only way you're going to get saved is through the blood of the Lamb, through the grace of God, through Christ. It's the only way you're going to get saved. But that offends me, you see. Because I'm not that bad. So you see that this principle still applies today to the intellectual, to the philosopher, to those who have the wisdom of this world, it's just absurd. You mean to tell me that one man 2,000 years ago, a plain, ordinary man who lived in Galilee, you mean to tell me that him dying on a Roman cross, somehow i got to believe that that can save me, what I need to save from anyway, but even if I did, that would save me. You expect me to believe that? It's moronic. Oh, we've still got that today, haven't we? It just doesn't make any sense to them. Because they can't figure it out. They need to be able to figure out. They need to be able to intellectualize it, to rationalize it, to logically think it through. But you don't need faith for that, do you? You need faith to believe this word. You need faith to believe that Jesus died for you 2,000 years ago and that's the only thing that's going to get you into heaven. You need faith to believe that. You can rationalize and intellectualize and think about it from now to doomsday, but until you bow the knee and become as a little child, you shall not ever enter into the kingdom of heaven, the Bible says. Well, you'll understand it once you make that decision. Once you accept Christ by faith, then it will become clear to you. Because the Holy Spirit will show you and it will become abundantly crystal clear. But until then, you just can't figure it out if that's what you try to do. So you see, after 2,000 years, it's still the same. To the cultured, the sophisticated, the intellectual, it's foolishness. To the religionist, to the self-righteous, to the modernist, it's an offense. It's an offense. It's foolishness. But to those of us who believe, it's the power of God 
unto salvation. <laughs> and therein lies the difference. It's the power of God unto salvation. Three crosses. They're both significant and symbolic. They represent all men in all ages, saved and unsaved, found a loss, accepted and rejected. Two thieves. Somebody said that God saved one that none may despair. Thank God for that. But only one that none may presume. One that none may despair. Even at the last second, the grace of God will hold. But only one that none may presume. The other thief could have been in paradise that day. But instead, a great gulf fixed over which no man can cross. Three crosses on a hill. The one in the middle made all the difference, didn't it? The one on that cross gave his life, laid it down. Years ago, we preached a message on the seven words that Jesus spoke from the cross. You know, you ought to look at your Gospels and read through those. See the sequence. See the significance of those words that he spoke from the cross. This is one of them. Today, you shall be with me in paradise. Even in Christ's dying moments, his grace reached out to that old thief. What marvelous mercy, eh? What wonderful grace. And that's the Christ that next weekend we're going to present to this audience. That's the Christ. And you'll see him being denied and rejected of men. You'll see him being sold. But you'll see him on a cross. And you'll see him rising from the dead. What a story we've got, amen? What a story. And that's why Easter, of all of the dates in the calendar, for the Christian, Easter is the one way, way above Christmas. Easter is the one. That's the greatest message. So this incoming week, invite somebody, as many as you can, get them in. Because as they sit in those seats, there might be a Billy and Lily Newell come in. Maybe some of your friends will come in and you've talked to them a thousand times, and they've read a hundred tracts, and they've heard many sermons, and they could come in, and for the first time, their eyes will open. The Holy Spirit can take all of this, touch a heart, and suddenly, suddenly, they'll see it and respond. Wouldn't that be marvelous? That's what we're praying for. That's what we've been praying for for weeks and weeks and weeks in the prayer meeting. That's what we've been praying for for weeks and weeks in our cell groups. And you as a cast, in your practices this week, let me tell you what to do. 
as much as you've got to learn all of your lines and do all of your practice, why don't you take 15 minutes at the end of it or at the beginning of it and say, we're going to do nothing else, only pray. Pray. And pray for souls to come through those doors. And pray when you do your stuff. Pray that the Holy Spirit will take that and touch their hearts. And then, and then, what a joy it would be to know that people had come to Christ. Wouldn't that be thrilling to know that? Amen? Let's pray.